This week on Culture Calculus, I'm joined as always by my co-host Jason Jones. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing pretty good, very good. You know, it's still warm in California, so I like summer extended. Yeah. How are you feeling about winning 107 games and 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 still having to play a wild card game? Disgusted, but I mean it is <laughs> it is what it is. You know, I you know you went win your wild card game and. I don't think anyone beats the Dodgers in a series. So just win the game. I mean, as a Dodger, this is actually to me was kind of a down season with the injuries they had. Mm-hmm. They're healthy after they win 115. So yeah. they get in, I'm not worried. It's just, it's, it's, of course, they have to get St. Louis, which hasn't lost since they probably played the Dodgers. <laughs> right. You know, right. but I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird setup. You know, you know, I don't think baseball would have ever imagined you have 213 wins between mm-hmm. two teams in the same division. So, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, your business in, in 2018, after, like the, the year after the Yankees and obviously the Dodgers kind of got screwed by the by the Astros in, in the postseason. Uh, the Yankees won 100 games and the Red Sox just happened to win 108 that year. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it, it always it always kind of sucks. But we are back this week. Uh, I'm very, very pleased to to welcome our guest of this week, Dave Zirin, who is the sports editor at The Nation magazine, old friend of mine, and uh, has just written this book, The Kaepernick Effect. Um, which has gotten a lot of deserved praise, you know, has has kind of chronicled not just what Colin Kaepernick had gone through, but really is focused on his legacy and the impact that he's had on generations of, of athletes, generations of young kids, and all kinds of things like that in the future. So Dave, thank you so much for, for joining us on Culture Calculus. Oh, it's great to be here, even though it's hard to listen to anybody upset about 107 wins when you're an Orioles fan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair enough, but let me tell you, man, Dave, like there were three games there where literally everyone in the American League East and Seattle was rooting for the Orioles there. That's true. <laughs> oh, the, the texts were coming fast and furious. It was actually kind of fun. It's like, wow, everyone cares what Austin Hayes is doing. How exciting. Yep. Yep. You know, Melvin Mora, like, you know, one of my favorite players of all time. <laughs> Mel- we have a Melvin Mora reference in the wow, house. That's a name <laughs> I haven't heard in quite a while. It's a deep cut. Well, first of all, Dave, congratulations so much on the book. It's been very well received. I've seen you all over the place. You know, you've always been kind of a very strong voice in progressive issues in sports and racial issues in sports. First of all, what has it been like to see how the book has been received? Well, it's been surprising and very gratifying for sure. I mean, I've made no secret about the fact my proceeds from the book are going to go to an organization called Serve Your City DC. Uh, because I, I'm chronicling the courage of a lot of people who took a knee during the anthem, particularly young people. And I wanted to pay forward their courage and plant seeds for uh, the next generation. And so Serve Your City, which does amazing work with kids in Southeast DC, they actually did a 500 backpack giveaway to kids that had uh, books in it and, and school supplies. And they included a copy of the book in each of the 500 backpacks. So, you know, that that to me is as big a thrill as anything I've ever done or maybe would ever do. Uh, so I'm, I'm really happy the book's doing well. And I'm, I'm happy particularly because I feel like it it honors the courage of the people who trusted me enough to, to talk to me because it would kind of suck. Like that that's the pressure of it. Like if the book sucks, 
people are gonna sort of think, wow, these stories don't matter when the fault would actually be with me, the writer. So they're putting like a lot of trust in me to sort of almost validate their story for a broader audience. And there's pressure with that. And so the fact that it's being received, the fact that I get texts from the people I interviewed saying they're pumped to hear, you know, people talking about the book. I mean, that's what, that's really what it's all about. Right. These are not issues that are are new to you. You have been involved in some way, either covering or directly involved in the Kaepernick struggle for years now. And I remember, I think I want to say it was 2017. There was a big pro-Kaepernick rally in front of 345 Park, in front of the NFL offices in Midtown Manhattan. Um, and, and I attended, I covered that rally. And I want to say you were the only white guy who spoke. <laughs> That's where Dodd. I was. <laughs> Well, so first of all, you know, this, this, I, I, I say that somewhat jokingly, but like, you know, th- there could be people who are like, well, why is this guy writing the book on this? Why is he speaking at the rally? Right. And, and I'm sure that you've heard some of that before. Um, not to say that you haven't put in the work, obviously. How do you kind of take that? And how do you take the responsibility as being a white guy who is covering racial issues and police brutality? And, and how do you kind of how do you how do you move that forward from your position of relative privilege? Yeah, no, it's the right question. And it's a fair question. Um, speaking very much about this book, The Kaepernick Effect, um, you know, Colin Kaepernick has been largely silent over the last five years, although he you know, I think that's going to change a lot in the next year. And um, it was very important to me that the people who took a knee would not be forgotten at the high school level and at the college level, because I felt like that was going to just fall down the memory hole. And this actually, this this whole thought process started when I was talking to John Carlos, who I, whose book I did with him, 1968 Olympian. And he said to me, you know, there were a lot of people back in 68 who raised their fist, you know, after we did at track meets and things like that. And that just, you know, got my brain working like, whoa, those folks have been kind of forgotten to history. I, I mean, I thought I knew the 68 story backwards and forwards. I didn't know there was a youth revolt in sports connected to it. So the idea was I, I got to like write something that that makes sure that these voices don't get forgotten. And then there's the question of, you know, my own whiteness, like because Colin has been silent, it was very important to me to not center my own voice in the book and have it be like, here's what I think about Kaepernick. And this is also what I think. And chapter three, how the NFL, blah, blah, you know, whatever. It's like, no, let, let and I've, I've never really done a book like this before. It's like, let me take a huge step backwards. And also it's connected to the serve your city thing we talked about. Like, let me make sure I'm not like here sort of like profiting Mm-hmm. off of their courage let me make sure that's all getting paid forward and let me make their voices you know the voices of black brown youth male female a non-binary athlete with whom i speak uh people uh taking a knee people uh trying to navigate their own lives every sport cheerleading softball hockey ultimate frisbee whatever you know not just football so not having it be so football centric and you know trying to make sure that those voices very much get centered and you know and then that's really what it's all about like like if i'm asked to speak at something like the kaepernick rally or whatnot it's always you know trying to make sure that I'm doing it for the purpose of not self-promotion, but trying to help carry the weight, I guess, is the best way to look at it. Because when I've interviewed, I remember a lot like of NFL players um, who were exclusively black, like in 2016, 2017, they expressed so much frustration about their white teammates' uh, inactivity. Mm-hmm. 
And it was this thing where I would ask them, well, why is it important for your white teammates to step out with you? And they said, well, because, you know, the weight needs to be carried collectively, you know, otherwise it's just tremendous amount on us. And so it's, it's just trying to think of it from that perspective of solidarity and, and, and the idea that I don't want people just sort of left alone on an island fighting racism. I don't want to live in a racist world, but I don't just want to be on the sideline applauding others for doing the work. So, you know, that, that's how I try to work it through in my head. Right. I mean, you know, John Carlos and, and, and Tommy Smith rightfully are the icons of that moment and of that movement. There was still the, you know, the necessary silence and respect of Peter Norman, um, the white mm-hmm. ally who, who was still there in that moment, didn't realize he was going to be. And, and, and allyship is so important in this context. Um, I guess, you know, so many of these stories are so are so compelling. And some of them I I did have the opportunity to read the book before our conversation. So many of them just jumped off the page at me. And I, I think the one that I first of all want to hear you talk about was the cheerleader at the University of Pennsylvania. Can you tell us that story? Oh. Uh, yeah, Alexis Bazin. I mean, fr- from a, a rural uh, community in the southeast of the United States, and you know, really having to wrestle with being then at this elite Ivy League institution, and how you navigate that, particularly when she's new people growing up in her own life, who had been killed by police, and you know, there's she even spoke about a, a tree in her town that was like this, known as the hanging tree like with reference to lynching. I mean, so this is the background that she came from. You know, she thought about going to um, HBCU, something like that. And then she went to Penn and then just having to navigate the situation at Penn. I mean, and that's the story. It's about Alexis's courage of what a lot of people in the book are going through, which is like a lot of frustration at predominantly white institutions and trying to figure out ways in which to in which to actually spur some form of conversation uh some form of friction because like alexis said to me she said like people tell me i made them feel uncomfortable by taking a knee but i feel uncomfortable here every day so where's you know so so god forbid you have to experience that for a couple of minutes and then you know maybe then that might even give you a little bit of insight into what it is that i'm going through at this school so yeah Ale- alexis just one of many like incredibly I think courageous people who you know were willing to look beyond themselves and that's the thing about I got to say Kavitha like like I started writing this book at the start of the pandemic feeling very uh pessimistic about the world you know because there was this whole pandemic thing and <laughs> and and also some of the movements you know seemed very much at a lull if not brought to a standstill by the pandemic I mean people were scared to leave their houses at first and and yet the process of talking to folks like Alexis and all the folks in the book I mean, it, it kind of restored my optimism. And this actually goes to the question of allyship, not so much uh, black, brown, white, and that question, privilege, and that question of allyship, but it made me think a lot about generational allyship, mm. and, and, which I think is going to have to be a question that all of us think about going forward. Because I think this next generation is really special. You know, these folks who were born after the year 2000, and I'm not just saying that because I have a 17 year old daughter, like, I I really do feel like they're going to, they're bringing their own sauce and flavor to the table that has the possibility to actually move this world and push it in the right direction. But I'm very wary of also just sort of standing to the side 
and sort of being like, save us, Generation Z. We fucked up this world so terribly. <laughs> save us, save us. You know, because all that does is put even more pressure on this young generation that's already dealing with all kinds of stuff that I certainly never had to deal with growing up. So figuring out how to how to create platform. I mean, this is going to be like my, my, I think my obsession over the next decade is like, how do you create platforms for these folks? How do you create organizational, financial, political, ideological? How do you create support systems for them so they could do this kind of work, which I think is just going to be earth shaking. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yeah, Dave, and you talk about talking with, you know, young people and just this new generation and over the years, you always see, you know, the young people tend to be the ones sparking a lot of the debate. And it seems like I know I'm in my 40s now. There's a point where that optimism and that hope kind of gets squashed, it seems like, every generation. What do you see about this generation where you say this can be the group that pushes past all that? Yeah, I think the difference between this group and other groups are two things. Um, First, uh, the, the, the immediacy. Of, of the climate crisis is, is going to be something that they have to face down themselves. Um, I mean, I don't think it's going to be, it's going to become less and less tenable to be a bystander over the next 20, 30 years. Um, so just the objective reality is going to be tough uh, with them. And, and it, it, it's heartbreaking in, in some respects. Um, but it's also like, I just feel like they're, they're toughened in a way. This generation is more demographically diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States. And they're also a generation that's constantly spit upon, oftentimes for those very reasons, mm-hmm. because they actually give a shit about how other people are marginalized and how that might make them feel, you know, and then they're derided for that, you know, with all sorts of lovely nicknames and, and hashtags and all sorts of crap. And then the fact that they're diverse has been the cause of nothing less than a, a demographic spasm of panic that echoes through our entire political system from the voting rights suppression issue to the uh, critical race theory stuff. I mean, all of this, I would argue, is aimed down at a very particular generation who in the summer of 2020 gave us the largest protests in the history of the United States. We were talking before we started recording about, I was just said that red state, blue state differentiation Mm -hmm. isn't particularly helpful. And like these protests in 2020, a lot of folks don't realize they took place in all 50 states. And there's no record of that happening around a particular issue on anything in the history of this country. So they, they hold the potential also because of social media and because of, I think, a generational disgust with the way things are to actually knit together people in a country that sometimes seem hopelessly divided. So that that's where a lot of my hope uh, is coming from. And then I'll just say one last thing is that I also think they're, these folks have calluses. You know, they've got some battle scars, like just go, just growing up in a post-Columbine, post-9-11, uh, pandemic, uh, you know, racism, police violence, 
it's like the the the, the environment i mean the the piling up of issues i mean uh, uh, me too is definitely a part of that uh lgbtq consciousness is definitely a part of that it's going to be i think it's just the the accruing of uh, of calluses going forward i think it's just going to help prevent them from having their hearts publicly broken and then sliding into cynicism in a way that you're absolutely right jason like that we've seen as a story time and again in u.s history with what cap did i mean he didn't he didn't set out to be the face of, of a movement and like you said he has been largely silent um in recent years um and has kind of been co-opted or been by either side, um, been been used as an avatar for this thing that he didn't necessarily intentionally mean to spark, but obviously he is the face of this, right? And I think that it could have been very easy to say, well, this is going to be a story for a month. <laughs> and then and then it's just going to die down, you know, where like this was preseason, right? So when the regular mm-hmm. season starts, you know, football takes precedent over everything. Nobody's actually going to be paying attention to that. And that's actually just not what happened. Mm-hmm. And when you when you talk about, you know, the last year after George Floyd was murdered of protests and activism that we saw, not just in Minneapolis, not just in New York and San Francisco and D.C., but across the country. You know, I think that there is a little bit of a sense right now that, you know, we're not seeing the same level of marching and the same mm-hmm. level of protest that we did see last summer. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that that activism sentiment is still not there. From everything that you've learned about how people have been inspired by Kaepernick, You know, what can you apply from that to this current moment of obviously ongoing inequality, ongoing racism, ongoing police brutality, and how we can keep this momentum going forward? Yeah, I mean, the the big thing, and this is what what I said before about um, people, you know, of a, shall we say, certain age, certain (laughs) vintage, you know, offering uh, ideological, emotional, and historical support, because you know, like, I, I still keep in touch with the folks who, a lot of them, who I interview for the book. And, you know, they, they have these same questions. Like, we had these huge protests a year ago. Wh- where is the movement now? What, what, should, what should we be doing? And I think even understanding that, that when you have these sort of mass social movements, you know, they operate on ebbs and flows. You know, there's, um, when you read, like, Parting the Waters, the Taylor Branch book about Dr. King, the three volume, it's so interesting to read about periods like the late 1950s where there are voices assuming that the protest period has ended. You know, in the 60s are just going to be like the early 50s 2.0. And it's like, oh, we had our moment in Montgomery, you know, and and that's, you know, that that day has passed. And it's a reminder how these ebbs and flows can operate in movements. And, you know, I still feel like, you know, the wine is out of the bottle and this country is, you know, like sort of like a globe balancing on the head of a pin and it can roll one way or the other at a at a moment's notice, you know, with, with, the, with the lightness of a tweet. But I think what's confusing to people is that it's not only that, well, we're in a lull, it's that we're living in the time of, of just a ferocious backlash. I mean, like my friend Jesse Hagopian calls it the boundless satire that is the United States of America. It's like when, when you have a, a country that you have the state, Texas, where Juneteenth will be a holiday, but you could get fired as a teacher for teaching what Juneteenth actually is. I mean, what, what kind of, what kind of country (laughs) is this? You know, and and I think that that level of contradiction is not something that's going to be able to hold uh, indefinitely. And so for a lot of these young folks, like this is like, this is what I said before about them having calluses. 
is like they've already experienced a back. They experienced a backlash when they took that knee. Uh, they experienced a backlash from uh, trying to navigate coaches, friends, family, community, death threats. So you know, even though there there's some like questions and like where do we go from here, you know, this isn't their first rodeo. Uh, and I think the job they did, and this is one of the things I felt like was getting written out of the history books. Why I wanted to to do this book, uh, the job they did in sustaining you know, what was, what had taken place with Kaepernick in that fall of 2016, like sustaining it as a public question, you know, not Kaepernick as a public question, but police violence as a public question mm -hmm. for years. I think without the athletic fields of the United States, you know, it, it's, it's hard to imagine 2020, the summer looking the way it looks and people in the movement, like, I think they see that as well. Like whether you're talking about, like, I went to a bunch of the protests summer 2020 where I am, uh, as an observer, obviously as a, uh, someone sympathetic, but I really was more like I was writing the book and I wanted to vibe it out a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there were so many signs of people doing the juxtaposition of Colin taking that knee and Derek Chauvin's knee on the neck of George Floyd and, and really like holding it up as you know like like th these are actually two visions of this country you know peaceful dissent about the way things are and police repression i was just in minneapolis last week and i went to george floyd square in minneapolis where there are all these murals and, and commemorations there's a huge one a cap right there of him taking a knee and so it's like even though he's been silent i think the people who in a weird way, I don't think this was intentional. I, I've never thought there was some Colin Kaepernick master plan. I think this has been ad-libbed as it's gone along. And I think he's comfortable with the silence. But one of the benefits of the silence is that um, people like the people I write about in my book can sort of use what he did as a method or a language of protest as opposed to then feeling like you have to justify, say, everything he said, or feeling like, you know, that he's the leader that you have to, you know, pay some sort of tribute to. No, he's just happens to be an NFL player who took a knee during the national anthem, showed that as an athlete, you can dissent, that you can speak out against police violence, that you can say that there's a gap in this country between the way things are and the way things ought to be. And you're going to showcase that every time you take the field. And Dave, you speak about the silence. I know that's one thing when it comes to cap that I've kind of gone back and forth on with people and even with myself. You feel like, oh, well, I've never felt like Colin jumped out to be the face of a movement per se. So it's, you know, maybe it's good that you're not saying a lot, but there are people who say now that you're in this position, you need to talk a whole lot more. I've always said that maybe not be his lane. Maybe he doesn't want to be that guy. Could the fact that he, like you said, the silence, give strength to these youngsters who are then coming behind him and saying, well, maybe I'm not kneeling specifically for the same reason, but this, this symbol, this you know, symbolism allows me to speak on, you know, police issues, race issues, gender. And mm -hmm. Colin maybe is speaking through that, maybe without words, but just his action continues to speak out. That's a great point. You know, there's that, that line, I think it's from, Shakespeare, but I don't know. It says some are born great and some have greatness thrust upon them. Mm -hmm. um, Colin Kaepernick, I don't think wanted any of this. You can imagine like being in his place for a second, like a, a professional athlete, 29 years old, very frustrated first about his career. I mean, he was backing up Blaine Gabbert. That would frustrate anybody. And, and also just very uh, frustrated about police violence in the state of the world. And, you know, you sit during the anthem 
And in a lot of ways, that gesture could have gone down in history, like, say, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf's refusal to come out for the national anthem, for example, where it was a big story. This goes to something Kavita was saying, where it was like a big story and then it, and then it went away. And then it was like, who's Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, you know, and wait till the end of the contract and then quietly don't resign him and make sure all players know that he wasn't resigned because he spoke out and you better not do the same. That could have very well been the story. But then there just happened to be this mass movement in the streets that amplified and turned like there were so many sports, um, you know, like lunkhead people who I don't think realized what they were necessarily even doing. But they, they had this line that, oh, Colin Kaepernick's utterly irrelevant. No one cares when the season starts. No one's going to care anymore. But the mere fact that they kept going back to that well and talking about how it doesn't matter what an athlete does only made it matter all the more. You know, the fact that they couldn't let it go, the fact that Donald Trump couldn't let it go. I mean, it, it only polarized the situation uh, much more sharply. Um, so... Yeah, the, the silence question, Jason, is is one that, that used to vex me a lot because I, I, I wanted that voice out there because I'd met him. Uh, he's really a smart dude. Like I, It's like this voice would be a positive if it was out there on the regular um, commenting on social media, for example, about this, that, and the other. But there's also a power in silence of there's something implicit there. Again, I don't think this was part of some master plan, but there's something implicit in silence where you're challenging other people to fill the gap. And I think that that's for someone who certainly did not ask for mass movement status, you know, th there's something imp impressive and important with that, that, that I think is worth, is worth valuing. Kind of along those lines, you know, if, is there a tension, you know, he, he starts doing this very quiet, gesture during preseason. Nobody notices until two or three weeks into the preseason. And then it becomes this gigantic thing that obviously we're still talking about five years later. Um, hasn't played in the NFL. I think a lot of people agree that he's been blackballed, all of that. Is there a tension between, you know, if this hadn't blown up as it had, if he had just been, you know, continually been allowed to express himself without it being a controversy? Is there a tension between what might have been better individually for Kaepernick, the person, Kaepernick, the man, the football player, would he still have his career, all of that versus what was clearly good for the movement in having him as that, as that symbol? Yeah. I mean, it, this is the part about Colin Kaepernick that I think is, is totally um, admirable and, and, and remains uh, li like a lesson for us to to build upon is, you know, people may or may not realize that, you know, he, he'd be back in the NFL if he decided to do the Tony Dungy apology tour, mm -hmm. you know, and just sitting next to Tony Dungy on 60 Minutes and said something like, wow, I've been so educated by how this affected military families. And now I realize that that's not what the anthem is. This, that's not what that space is for. While Tony Dungy sat and would sit next to him and nod his head sagely. And, and, and Colin Kaepernick's response to that was get the fuck away from me. With that. <laughs> like I have nothing to apologize for. Similarly, when there were all these questions about like, well, you know, why don't you sign as a backup quarterback? You know, his response to that was I'm not a backup quarterback. Although those offers, by the way, never came in anyway. That's a, a huge myth. So even like mm. the chance to be a backup wasn't something that was handed to him. But like when he was seeing like Jay Cutler handed $10 million to come fill in for the Dolphins for a year, it was 
ridiculous. So he 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 ref and and even like him wearing that shirt when he did that bizarre NFL tryout thing a couple years ago. It said Kunta Kinte on it. I mean, this these are these are very deliberate acts of him saying like I'm not going to be broken because that's of course the famous scene in Roots where Levar Burton is is broken with with a whip into renouncing his name and taking a, a different name and he's he's saying like i'm not going to be broken by this situation if i come back it's going to be on my own terms and it's the nfl that that chose to go down this path i mean he i think would have been very very happy even two three four five hell maybe even today i mean from what i hear he's still working out i mean that he relished the chance to do what he only grew up dreaming of doing his entire life and planned on doing well into his 30s so you know that that's that that's i think the situation where 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 it ends up is that he's somebody who was able to stand stand his ground for lack of a better term in the face of a, a media complex a multi-billion dollar league and all sorts of bad faith political actors who are trying to tear him down and I think what this really exposed as well, what I've always said for years in covering the NFL and NBA, a lot of decisions are made not based on what happens on the field. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other things that go into roster decisions. And living in the Bay Area, when, when the news first broke about Kaepernick kneeling, I told someone, he's done in the league. Mm. And someone said, why? I said, I said, don't take it the wrong way. He's not good enough to get away with this. They're going to make an example out of him. And so. Yeah. And I and everyone said, oh, no, come on. He's been to the Super Bowl coming off. And I said, no, they're not going to let this quarterback get away with that. And mm -hmm. there was this narrative that he didn't want to play and he had refused trades and the trades that didn't go through were trades. No quarterback would have taken, mm -hmm. you know, Denver saying, well, if you don't, you know, slash your salary, we'll take you. No one would have taken that. But all these stories has become the formulate to show that uh, <laughs> or to try to show that he didn't want to play football anymore. And I'm wondering if one of the important lessons we get from this is that maybe fans and even media will understand that or be honest with the fact that there are a lot of things that happen in sports that are very political, that are not about, you know, the best man winning. There isn't this system of the best man always wins. And I think Colin's situation highlighted that because you can't tell me that in 2016, he was not one of the best right. 90 quarterbacks in the, in the world. <laughs> right. And, and isn't this just the oldest story in sports? I mean, and you're right. If we can raise consciousness about that through, through the Kaepernick story, I think that's really important because sports has been, politics has been baked into the cake of sports since its very beginning. And it's been baked in there for, for the very thing you just, you just said, because sports operates with this myth of inclusion and then reality of exclusion, you know, because like you said, it's like the myth of inclusion is, you know, sports are like America. It's a level playing field and anybody who tries hard enough can make it. And it's always going to be the best people on the field because the goal is winning. Therefore, the logic of it. And you heard so many people say this when Kaepernick wasn't being signed. Like if NFL franchise owners want to win and if there was, you know, any any sense that he could help a team win, he would be signed. And that's that's just not the case. I mean, NFL franchise owners decided that, you know, Colin Kaepernick had more value as a ghost story than he did as a contributor. Mm -hmm. And that's the decision they made. But to get back to this myth of inclusion, reality of exclusion, this exclusion, you know, it was women, black and brown folks, 
forget if you're LGBTQ, like finding a place uh, in the sports world. So there's always been this fight for access in sports that's existed from its very beginning, like literally from like day, if day one was, hey, we're going to have professional sports in this country. Day two is, well, where's my ball? Mm-hmm. You know, where am I going to be? And so this this contradiction is so deep in the sports that um, that we still face it to this day, of course, like the the utter hysteria and brutality that that trans athletes are treated with and trying to keep them off the field is a great example of that but i think another example of that i mean is the kaepernick story that this is this is about politics it's not about sports and or you could say it is about sports because sports are politics by another name sports have always been about politics and you and i have talked about that a lot dave um over the years you mentioned um, Jesse Hagopian uh, earlier, and he he's a teacher at Garfield High School, which the story around Garfield features prominently in, in one of your chapters. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that, because some of the things, first of all, the football coach at the time when all of this was happening was a former NFL player um, who himself is black and he's no longer at the program. And, and when you described what, you know, the decision of, of the football team to fall, to mimic Kaepernick's protest, it was striking to me that, you know, they had to have these conversations with these kids about mm-hmm. what exactly it meant. You know, not all of them really understood what Kaepernick was was doing, what what it stood for, all of that. Um, they had a conversation about the third verse of the national anthem, which we don't talk enough about in this country. So if you can if you can kind of go through what you learned, what what we all should learn from the Garfield situation. Ooh, I mean, the Garfield situation to me is one of a couple of examples in the book. Uh, but in a weird way, it is my favorite because I have such a soft spot for Garfield being the school of Quincy Jones and Jimi Hendrix in Seattle, Washington. And, and the thing about it that that sticks with me so much is this thing that um joe ehrman who used to play for the baltimore colts always talks about is there being two kinds of coaches uh the transformational and the transactional and the transactional coach which is all too prevalent in this country is like youth sports coaches who think they're bill belichick you know who, who are in it for themselves and for their own ego gratification to see victory i mean my kids have had coaches like that i've had coaches like that it's it's pretty ugly and it's pretty common the transformational coach is like yeah it's winning feels great and it's it's great to win but like this is also about how you're going to grow up and the kind of lessons you learn by being part of this team and you know th- those are the coaches who really change lives and coach joey thomas at garfield was a transformational coach in that okay a couple of players are talking about taking knee they saw kaepernick do it now they want to do it so you you get this sense uh that a coach in that situation could have taken that very sideways as a lot of coaches did in this country saying you don't belong on this team then you know we don't put up with that you know get out of here or even worse in some cases in the book just bad mouthing them behind their backs and make more and more isolated on their so-called family that is a team but like you said joey thomas was like "Ooh, an educational opportunity let's do this and so on a team that is you know very multiracial, it was like having you know white players sit with their discomfort at hearing their black teammates say this is what my life is like in seattle which has a very small black american population and a police force that for all its uh, liberal uh, pretensions is got some terrible history of police mm-hmm. violence and killings and for them to then come together and say okay well if we take a knee we're going to do it as a team 
and Joey Thomas to say, I'm going to be a part of that too and have support for you. I mean, that was something that they thought, and this is another interesting lesson from the book, they thought that was going to be greeted very positively in a city like Seattle. And there were people who gave them a lot of props for doing it, but then you also had Joey Thomas's tires getting slashed. Uh, you had death threats being called into the school. You had individual students who faced death threats. So even as the protests spread to like the softball team, to the soccer team, very specifically the women's soccer team, um, what, what you didn't have was um, the kind of support institutionally for people like Joey Thomas, who was then forced out of his job. And that's, I think that's another thing that reflects the times we're in right now. I mean, the, the backlash can take different forms, but it usually involves both a kind of grassroots violent element, but also an institutional um, element as well, where you're not getting support from the institutions and that only emboldens people to act out with violent threats or actual violence all the more. And what do you think that says about just the young people who still go out and do this? And you mentioned the calluses and things mm-hmm. with social media. They're probably able to find a lot more support than generations mm-hmm. beyond before them. But what does it just say to, to about the you know, the young people in the book and just in, across the country who still go out and protest and do these things and, and in the face of all that multiplied because of social media? People can jump on your posts and say things and message you and keep those threats and that fear alive. I mean, talking to Rodney Axon Jr. in the book, who I think was the first person to take a knee after Kaepernick in the whole United States, and him talking about having to walk his little sister to school, to elementary school, because of very actionable real threats he got against his family. I mean, it's it's amazing what they had to put up with, but it, it's like I didn't talk to one person who had regrets about what they did. Because even when it turned out badly, they felt like they were, it's like the the emperor has no clothes, basically, is probably a uh, metaphor there. Like this idea of, okay, even if the community acted out to me in a matter of of brutality, guess what? Now this community has to live with the fact that this is who they are. And people are going to grow up in this community and question why it has to be that way. So even in those cases where it was negative, they felt like there was a positive because they felt like there were problems no matter what, like that these divisions existed. Like they didn't cause the divisions. Uh, racism caused the divisions. They were pointing them out to people who wanted, and we, we know this uh, all too well, but wanted sports to be their own kind of safe space where they wouldn't have to think about all this stuff and how dare you impose uh, these ideas upon me when I'm just trying to cheer for you or boo you or watch you get hurt or whatever. Dave, for someone who has covered these issues as closely as you have for the last five years and more, was there anything that surprised you in the course of writing this book and and doing these interviews? Yeah, I I was, I was surprised that people weren't more, um, trying to think of the right, the right word to use, but like, that they didn't that they, they didn't resent the fact that they were even like had to be compelled to do this in the first place. I mean, I talked to a lot of happy warriors mm-hmm. in doing this book. And that was yet another thing that gave me hope because I would have been perfectly understandable 
if they were because you know we've all seen those signs on protests that that say like why do i even have to be protesting this shit you know mm -hmm. is is like why you know that that's a very common one but i've also never quite liked it because that's sort of like why do you have to protest this shit because we live in a fucked up society that's why we have to protest this shit you know i'm it sucks mm -hmm. but that's the reality you know the alternative is we don't do anything and we just let it be horrible. And the people I spoke with, they, they were like these kinds of happy warriors of people who were like, yeah, you know, that was the best thing that ever happened to me in high school, you know, was doing this. Or yeah, you know, it sucked to not get drafted by the NFL, but I wouldn't change a thing, you know, because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm the guy at Nebraska who took a knee and now everybody has to, you know, deal with that reality as part of Nebraska's football history. It's not all, you know, Mike Rozier and Tommy Frazier and Tom Osborne, you know, so there, there's that, that part of it, I think, uh, took, took me by surprise. And also, like I said this earlier, but I didn't expect to leave the book, writing the book with sort of like a smile on my face and, you know, a, a, a tap in my step, you know, I, I, I didn't expect it to be that kind of a party. I didn't expect it to be that kind of an experience. So, you know, and for that, I'm in their debt because it was the fact that they trusted me enough to give themselves their stories is something I really appreciate. Right. Well, we really appreciate you coming on here, Dave, and writing this book. And, you know, we've talked a lot about how so many stories that matter get lost Mm -hmm. when the history isn't told. And, and hopefully these stories will continue to be told. I think you also gave us our first ever Twelfth Night reference on the pod. So there's the that. Twelfth Night? Oh, wow. <laughs> See, I needed you to tell me that, though. I wasn't even sure it was Shakespeare. But yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, you know, these are obviously conversations we're going to continue to have for years to come. And I think that, you know, as as much as your book addresses this, Colin Kaepernick's legacy has yet to fully been written, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, and, and it's not even that open-ended. I think we're going to know a lot more in about a year. Hmm. Like I have no idea what the Ava DuVernay project is going to look like. I have Absolutely. no idea what uh, his next book's going to look like. I have no idea what the children's book he's going to put out is going to look like. Um, but you know, all of that, I mean, he's, he's again, like this takes courage. Like he's putting it out there for people like uh, everybody, <laughs> people like who, people like everybody to have their opinion about how he's dealing with the, the cultural capital that he's accrued over the last five years, you know, that he's going to be spending it over the next year. And we're, and I'm, I'm very excited to see how it turns out. Well, Dave, thanks so much, Jason, as always. Thank you. Thanks. We'll talk yeah, to thanks you again, next Dave. Week. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jason. And let me say, Jason, I've been reading your stuff for years. So this is a real thrill to be oh, able to thanks. talk. Appreciate it. Yeah, so I, it's my, I, I, I was waiting till the end to say that. Just, in case. <laughs> just went sideways, but no, for real. I've been reading you forever, so great to talk right. to you. Thanks for listening to Culture Calculus. I'm Kavitha Davidson for Jason Jones from The Athletic. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to give us a rating if you can as well. And make sure to tune in every Thursday. We'll have a different episode, a different guest, and a different topic at hand. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.